everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. On Everyday Injustice, we have the latest in our series on progressive candidates for district attorney. Today, we're talking to Jason Williams from New Orleans. He is currently on their city council, and now he is running for the district attorney. Welcome to our show, Jason. How are you? It's good to be with you. It's great to be with you. So you've said you're running for DA. Is that actually true? That's a fact. All right. Um, This November. Can you tell us about your background and why you're running? Sure. So uh, I um, I'll go a little further back than probably most uh, uh, candidate inquiries go. I, I was born in the city of New Orleans. Uh, however, when my parents were divorced, I uh, my mom moved to Atlanta, so I had the opportunity to grow up in Atlanta uh, as well as New Orleans and see how both cities. Uh, so kind of watch the trajectory of both both places and what caused that. Um, fast forwarding, I've spent damn near my entire legal career as a criminal defense attorney, um, um, fighting for folks in the city of New Orleans, in other parishes, as well as in other cities uh, in this country. Um, I've, I've won a lot of very difficult, tough cases. Um, from capital cases on down to what uh, some folks would deem as petty cases, but there is no case that's petty when you are the defendant or you're the victim. Um, In 2003, uh, after a series of high-profile cases, uh, Judge Quinlan passed away. Uh, He was a judge, long-term judge at Criminal District Court, and the Supreme Court of Louisiana appointed me uh, to serve as a judge at our criminal district court, which gave me a, a pretty unique insight for somebody less than 30 um, to be able to see um, the vantage point from the other side uh, of the bench. I'd also say um, when I was about nine years old, um, I had an aunt, great aunt, who was in an abusive relationship, who uh, finally left uh, her abusive partner, and within a week of having left and moved in with my other great aunt, her sister, uh, he went to uh, our family home in Bogalusa, Louisiana, and he killed, shot and killed two of my uncles who were outside working on a car who were trying to convince him to calm down and leave, uh, and also shot uh, my aunt who stood in the doorway to stop him from getting to uh, his partner. Uh, and that had a pretty profound impact on me. Um, 
growing up. And, you know, I still see today um, our current DA does not prioritize. In fact, he uh, seems to dismiss, not seems to, in fact, does dismiss about 90% of the cases of, 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 of folks charged with domestic abuse uh, battery. And so I think I'm uniquely qualified to, to BDA in the city of New Orleans at this time because of uh, many of the challenges that we're facing. Um, and I think part of the problem we're facing certain challenges is because of the, the draconian uh, approaches our prosecutors have been taking for a very long time. And they think they're doing a really great job because they're they, they're, they're, they're doing things well from the standpoint of they're doing exactly what somebody did before them and the DA did before them and the DA did before them. But the world has changed and prosecutors often need to do so as well. So what are the big issues that you're running on? So uh, first and foremost, I would say that uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, progressive ADA, progressive DAs, progressive prosecutors. I, I think there's another term that I like to use, and I'm glad your show actually uh, is highlighting these things and talking about them, but, but being smart on crime rather than being, uh, as, as a lot of folks say, tough on crime. And, and I think that sort of encompasses a lot of what I'd like to do and what I think is important in a city. Uh, number one, realizing that prosecuting as many people as you can in a city does not yield public safety benefits, nor does it reduce crime, nor does it reduce recidivism, uh, nor is it good for victims, um, right? And, and, and what that means is, sure, some things need to be diverted and, and, and not sent to uh, to criminal court, and that is the job of a good DA. But there's also uh, the discretion of a DA's office to decide when and when not to prosecute certain things. Now, as that as that discretion is wielded by the current DA, it's wielded based upon a, a, a defendant or a defendant's family's resources or connections to power. And that's the, the, the absolute wrong way to use that discretion. That discretion should be used to, 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 to train police officers to not violate the Constitution when making arrests and, and using your screening office to do that. And it should also be used to make sure that you're prosecuting crime in a community in an equitable and fair manner and not wasting taxpayer resources. So I think, number one, that's being smart on crime. Uh, and, and I also think you need to look at certain crimes that that have uh, higher percentages of, 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 of repeat offenses and, and look at those and try to figure out and use the power of the office to stop repeat offenders. And you got low level stuff like, like drugs because of drug addiction and a host of, of different sort of pettier crimes committed by persons who, who are in, men, in a mental health crisis or emotional or, or in the middle of emotional disturbance and and DAs can can have a very real impact on the criminal justice system by screening all cases uh, for addiction issues and mental health issues and treating those cases 
differently. And I think when, 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 a, when a good prosecutor is smart on crime in that way, it allows him to focus on offenders who have hurt people, murder, rape, armed robbery, domestic abuse, and, and really allow their line prosecutors to, to have more time to focus on investigating those cases to make sure the right person is charged and that they are building strong, solid cases against people that, that, that really are deserved uh, uh, prosecution. So tell us a little bit about the incumbent. Is he running for re-election and where do you distinguish yourself from him? As, as of right now, uh, he has not said that he is not running. So my, my, I have to assume that he is running. Um, he has, I ran against him in 2008 and I should share that with you as well. I, I ran against him in 2008 on a progressive on a progressive platform that is a lot, encompasses a lot of the same policies that I'm running for today, being smart on crime, not over prosecuting, better screening. He ran on a tough on crime perspective. Uh, he set artificial goals of accepting 90% of all cases, uh, which he did. Uh, he for the past several years has been losing. Uh, line prosecutors in his office who have been leaving. Uh, he has uh, lost a, a number of jury trials in, in court. He has engaged in what I believe to be uh, corrupt, improper practice of issuing fake DA subpoenas, which he purports when, when he presents them to private innocent citizens who he wishes to compel their testimony. He purports them to, or purported them to be real subpoenas signed by a judge and forced people to leave work, leave their homes, and come to his office for hours at a time. Um, and they were not real subpoenas. Uh, and, and I challenged the use of those from my position on the city council. Um, he has another policy of forcing and compelling domestic abuse survivors and sexual assault and rape survivors uh, to compel their testimony by by jailing them, detaining them, putting them in jail, holding them there until a trial date so that he can make them testify when they don't. I think that policy is morally reprehensible. And I think that any good DA or DA candidate should be willing to openly and publicly say that he will never jail a victim to compel their testimony. Um, uh, when I ran against him in 2008, I was the only candidate that said that I was in favor of gun reform. Uh, he he wrapped himself up um, in gun rights and said that he would not stand for that. And I think uh, history has shown since 2008 that we need DAs and elected officials who will publicly state they're in favor of gun reform because the fewer guns uh, on the street, um, the better, as far as I'm concerned. We're a hunting state, but we're not a hunting city. There's no hunting in Orleans Parish. Um, so, so I would probably say that, that I, I differ from the incumbent in, in every policy way um, that exists. I don't believe he has a policy. I don't believe that he ever crafted a policy for his office. I believe he just simply adopted uh, the old draconian policies that have existed 
uh, in the parish since the 60s and 70s. Um, and so, you know, speaking of which, uh, I'd be, you know, remiss to not talk to you a little bit about what the state of the criminal justice system looks like in New Orleans in the kind of post-Katrina world. We we heard horror stories, of course, about what was happening, you know, right after uh, Katrina. Uh, what's happening now? So I can tell you that um, the city council for the past, um, this term and last term, has been committed, and, and, I, and I've, I serve as an at-large member, and I rotate as president of the council, and we have been committed to, number one, reducing jail population in the city of New Orleans. Um, Pre-Katrina, as you mentioned, uh, our pre-trial detainees at, at our, our jail in the city were uh, over 7,000 people. Now we're at an all-time low. I believe the last number I get, and I get a report every Monday from uh, a, a public safety analyst that I hired to work for, for for the council on the criminal justice committee, which I also chair. And, and he gives me numbers every Monday of jail size, and it has continued to go down. And, and I monitor that because we have engaged in a robust uh, cadre of, of criminal justice reforms that were geared towards reducing um, jail population. And we want to make sure that, that the legislation we put in place has the impact that we want it to have. And our, our new number, I think, was that the last number was 1079 uh, and counting and still going down. So to go to, re- to go from 7,000 to about 1,000 uh, is probably the, the biggest um, uh, jail population reduction in, 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 in the United States today. So I'm very proud of that. We also have, uh, and, and we, are, we, are a, we are a progressive city in a very conservative state. So uh, uh, New Orleans is, is heavily Democratic and the state is heavily Republican. Um, but we have, we, we have not legalized uh, marijuana but we have decriminalized it in the city of New Orleans. And now it is a summonsable offense, which has also allowed us to reduce jail population. We have engaged in city council specifically as engaged in municipal bail reform in which we put um, new protocols in place. uh, And we worked with the municipal judges in order to do this. Um, to make sure that certain people would not have to post bond um, because because bail reform is just as big of a component of the criminal justice system and should be a component of being a progressive and smart DA as well. People should not sit in jail because they are poor and, and can't afford to get out. Harvey Weinstein probably has more charges than anybody else uh, in the world, but yet he goes back and forth to court. Um, from his home, but yet a person charged uh, with uh, the first offense that have been charged with would languish in jail waiting for trial only because they cannot post bail. So um, the landscape has changed, but it has not been an accident. It has been very purposeful, and, and, and most of that work has come uh, from, from the administration here in New Orleans and the city council. 
I'm proud of that work. And but it, it has pitted me against this DA. We often, uh, uh, we often find ourselves uh, on the opposite side of news stories and arguments as when he comes before the council. So let me ask you one more question about the past, because um, you know he's a large and looming figure, and that that's Harry Connick Sr., uh, the longtime DA there. Um, was right. he, he the direct uh, predecessor to the current DA? No, he was. So we had, after Connick, we had a DA by the name of Eddie Jordan, who 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 had a fairly robust screening process right after Katrina. Um, and he, he left office early. Uh, his, um, the few reforms he, he put in place in the screening department were not well received. And there were some other political issues that caused him to leave early. And uh, Canizero was the, the direct uh, followed uh, Eddie Jordan uh, shortly after. So Eddie Jordan did not do a full term. Uh, the, the next race was in 2008, which is when I ran against uh, Canizero. And a lot of um, a lot of my progressive policies were not um, the public did, did not quite understand the value of, of being progressive in that office at that time or the power of the office. And, Canizero won, and he saw it as his job to restore that office back to the Connick days, and, 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 and because he was, in fact, one of Connick's wide prosecutors who was involved in a number of those policies that led uh, Louisiana and the city of New Orleans to being uh, one of the most over-incarcerated uh, cities and states um, in the country, and uh, I mean, I, I neglected to mention before, I, I've, I've worked as a lawyer for the Innocence Project um, since uh, since I was in my 20s, and I'm now on the board of the Innocence Project in New Orleans. We're also, we also have the highest number of exonerations um, in the country as well, which lets you know we have been arresting, jailing, and convicting the wrong people with those conic and Canizero policies for a very, very long time as well. Well, and, and that's actually how I became aware of, you know, some of the problems uh, in, in New Orleans. We had uh, Thompson come out here after he was exonerated and before he passed away to talk about his experience. Um, and and that, that's really is a direct result, I think, of Connick, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Uh, one, 100%. And, and when you look at um, the, the, the legacy of Connick, and you look at uh, Canizero's role uh, when, 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 when J- and John was a friend of mine, and when John was in uh, before the Supreme Court and very, very conservative justices from the United States Supreme Court were lambasting uh, the, the prosecutor's work in New Orleans uh, Canizero, who was then the DA, his response was, he may have been uh, exonerated, but it doesn't mean he's innocent. And that tells you all you need to know about this person's policies and moral um, sort of convictions. Well, I appreciate uh, going back in time. Uh, so let's go forward in time. Um, and, and really, what 
policies are you looking to implement uh, in order to uh, decarcerate uh, New Orleans? Well, number one, uh, you, you said something that, that resonates with me uh, just now. You said you appreciate looking back in time, but let's go forward in time. I think the office itself has to, uh, has, has to take a couple of ticks, pause, and look back at its own work and its own self. So about three years ago, actually going on four years now, from the city council, I created a resolution and proposed the creation of a prosecutorial integrity unit, basically a wrongful conviction unit. Um, and what it did was it, it was a council resolution that created uh, a partnership between DA Tenazero's office and the Innocence Project New Orleans to go back and look at potential wrongful convictions outside of court because we can save money by, 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 by doing, this thing, doing these things without judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys fighting about it in court. And we allocated a, a nice uh, chunk of money from the, from the city to do this work. Uh, because I believe a DA's office cannot rebuild uh, the breach of trust that was created by Connick uh, and Canazero without looking back and dealing with those wrongful convictions. So one of my and so and, and, and so we pushed that. Canazero said he would do it. However, uh, he, the the lawyer he assigned to it um, uh, went out on maternity leave, and he did not assign a single attorney or paralegal or investigator to that unit for the the entire length of her maternity leave which meant the work was not being done and he was not committed to the work secondly when it was shown that an innocent person was in jail he would then by by the, the person assigned in that office and by the innocence project the person assigned in that office he would offer them manslaughter and credit for time served and I felt like that was improper because if, if the two lawyers on both sides agreed the wrong person was in jail and the real offender was left out in our streets to reoffend or not be held accountable, then we should not split a baby. Um, splitting the baby, in, it, it, it kills the baby. And then a lot of people always talk about splitting the baby, but they forget the, the rest of the story. And so that had... We, we had to end that work because he was not committed to it um, 100%. So SDA, one of the first ways or one of the first pieces that I'll put together in terms of de decarcerating our city would be the establishment of a meaningful and robust wrongful conviction unit that would go back as far as it needed to go um, uh, just to check a number of cases that we know and can very easily see uh, may have been wrongful prosecution. I think that part is important. Uh, that part is important to restoring uh, uh, the trust of the office. Uh, it's an important part to rebuilding trust in communities because, because a, a, a lot of crime occurs in poor communities and, and, a, and a lot of witnesses are, are not willing to come forward, not because they're scared uh, for their safety from the perpetrator, it's because they're scared of the system and they don't trust the system because it's taken away their family members and neighbors wrongfully. So that, that would be 
the first tenet of decarcerating, one of the first steps I would take uh, as VA. Well, since you anticipated one of my questions about a wrongful convictions unit, uh, why do you think there have been so many wrongful convictions in New Orleans? Well, th there was a culture uh, in our police department pre prior to the consent decree, uh, and there was a culture just with community uh, that there was sort of this us against them. Uh, and, and, and that crime looked a certain way and that poor people were committing it. And, and, and there were trials that lasted, uh, a day or two, capital cases that lasted a day, a day or two. There were, uh, and, and no, 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 no defense attorney worth his salt would allow a trial to move that fast for a crime that serious. There were jury deliberations that, took um, just a couple of hours. And so there was a mentality that fast justice, fast arrest, fast closures meant you were delivering public safety. And I think uh, that's been dismantled across the country. And, it, and it's certainly been, been dismantled here by, by community. Community understands that you need thorough, thoughtful and complete investigation, thorough, thoughtful and complete screening processes to make sure that the police did their job properly. And, 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 and there is no benefit in rushing through a trial and not making sure that all witnesses were accounted for and allowed to testify and make it to the light of day and making sure that there are policies in place that will hold an ADA accountable if they do not turn over the complete file to the defense team as soon as that information becomes aware uh, to the DA. And I'm specifically talking about Brady evidence. And so all of that has led to the number of wrongful convictions. And it's not enough to say we turn over Brady evidence. It's not enough to say we believe in Brady. You have to have policies in place that encourage and support ADA and police to play a fair game to make sure that there is real due process and absolutely a fair trial and fair investigation leading up to trial. Um, and and shifting gears slightly, you brought up uh, you know police issues. Uh, what are you planning to do about police accountability? You know, I, um, I've, I've spent a little time uh, with Larry Krasner, uh, who's been very helpful to me and sort of just thinking through some things because, you know, as Mike Tyson said, uh, everybody's got a plan so you get punched in the face. And so doing the job in real time is a lot harder than uh, theoretically planning how you do the job. And I do believe that when a, uh, a, a, a member of law enforcement has proven that they will lie or hide evidence, I think it is important that that be marked. That that be marked, that be marked publicly and duly noted so that it is clear that that person will not be trusted to deliver important information uh, in, 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 in other proceedings. And I think that, I think that, is, that is a fundamental policy um, that can prevent 
uh, bad police work and bad policing to, 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 to manifest itself in wrongful convictions. And it sends a message to good police officers that doing it the right way will be rewarded and favored. So it, 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 I think it's twofold. One, to, to fundamentally catch and stop people that are not playing by the rules and, and breaking the law and to encourage good police work uh, and, and, and the um, raising up of good police officers. So I'm going to ask you this question, and I know you don't, uh, as a DA, have direct control over it, but, you know, I'd be remiss not to ask you, you know, is there anything you can do about a place like Angola Prison? You know, um, I think one of the things, that, that, that one of the, the clear things that you can do, and it's one of the reasons I'm running for DA, one of the reasons I'm leaving uh, or stepping, I would step down from my seat as president of the council to run for this office. I mean, we have literally shoveled and, 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 and just forced members of the community uh, into incarceration by by one, um, keeping people in jail until trial or until a plea deal is struck, um, by misusing the habitual offender law and using it as a threat to compel someone to plead guilty when they may not be guilty and take a lot of time because they might be facing even more time because of their record. Um, so I think there are policies that can be put in place by not misusing the habitual offender law, by by engaging in meaningful, thoughtful sentences that can allow a person to pay their debt to society and not be gone for periods of time from their families and community that are not consistent with the crime that they've committed, right? So one of the things that I think can be done is have an office that is not shipping up uh, a quarter uh, of our citizens uh, to Angola to serve long sentences that they that they frankly should not serve. You know, uh, using uh, it, it's not sentencing reform, and, and DAs you know love to say they're not playing a role in that, but they do. They play a huge role in the amount of time that people serve. And I think that when you look at other jurisdictions, you look at other places in the world, you can have an impact on someone's life by them serving one year in jail, four years in jail, rather than 15 and 20 year sentences that just really take them out of the workforce and take them away from their parenting responsibilities. So what other things are you planning to do if you get elected to DA? Well, number one, I would publicly uh, endorse and engage in um, discourse uh, on bail reform. You know, just more broadly, um, bail reform is the monetizing of, 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 of who should be in and, and not be in jail. I think DAs across the country need to, need to play some role in that, even if, it is just, even if it's just being honest with the public and letting them know that, that, that money bail does not make them safer, right? So I think that's important, just being honest with the public. The other part is, being transparent with our policies and our numbers and our data about 
who race, whether whether it's race, whether it's sex, whether it's socioeconomic, who is who, who whose cases are being accepted, whose cases are being dismissed, um, whose cases are being diverted. I believe that uh, my office will uh, share our data and be very transparent about who's being prosecuted and who's not in the city of New Orleans. I think that is important. I think it's also important, and although I will have I will have left uh, the council that does con- that does control the city's purse strings, but I will also be very supportive as DA as counterpart to the public defender and the criminal justice. I will be supportive of parity, making sure that public defender's offices that our public defender's office is getting uh, what it needs to function, you know, and and part of assisting in that effort is going to be having a a real screening process that decides which cases need to make their way to court, which is going to reduce the burden on the court system for judges and public defenders and ADAs alike in in terms of the size of court docket. I think a good DA can reduce the docket size of the court and reduce um, uh, the, the, the the, the amount of money the public defender's office has to spend each year. So it's interesting. Uh, you you mentioned that you ran in 2008 and you, um, you had similar views as to what you had now. And it seemed like, you know, those didn't resonate back in 2008. I've had a similar experience, not as, as an attorney, but as a reporter, um, you know, I was talking about issues in 2009, 2010, and nobody else was talking about this stuff at that time. And I seemed at that time like this kind of crazy radical. Um, exactly and, right. Exactly right. And and now everybody's speaking my language. Um, yeah. And, and so there there is this real movement. And I know you mentioned, you know, you kind of prefer the term uh, smart on crime, but there really is a progressive movement going on, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And I got to tell you, as a as a defense attorney, as a private citizen, as a member of a progressive council that has pushed for these progressive reforms, as a friend of our, our governor, who's a Democrat in a Republican state, who is also engaged in criminal justice reform and sending people home early and reducing sentences, we, we, we have, we, our, our violent crime rate, our shooting and homicide rate is at an all-time low since the 1950s, right? So, so criminal justice reform, uh, progressive policies that we've put in place, and we don't have a progressive DA yet, have already uh, uh, proven to be good for public safety. And, 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 and it's so exciting to see progressive DAs getting elected um, throughout the country, and it's exciting to see other progressive leaders who are supportive of their work getting elected and staying true to that commitment because it has allowed data points to show that being progressive actually is good for victims, it's good for citizens, and it and it, 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 it and it's good for the, the city's budget, right? So years ago, like you said, when you said things, people are like, who's this crazy man? What are you talking about bail reform? What are you talking about gun control? I, I remember when I said I was in favor of gun control in a room full of people uh, at one of our local universities, people looked at me as if I had uh, turned into a, a unicorn in front of them, right? And, and now these are the majority of all of our citizens 
thinking, regardless of race, regardless of age, and regardless of socioeconomic status. So it's really exciting to see America go from, and my community go from seeing the criminal justice system as they did in 2008 to what they see it now in 2020, which I still think is a fairly short period of time. It's really exciting. So uh, some closing thoughts? Closing thoughts would be um, a lot of folks, uh, our DA right now is making a big argument that, you know, he is he has lost lawyers from his office uh, at, at, a, at an alarming clip. And he says it's because he doesn't have more money. Now, what I've been doing is I've been meeting with as many of his ADAs who've left his office who are willing to talk to me to talk like sort of an exit interview. Why are you leaving? What was, what was, what caused you to leave? And not a single one of them has cited money or salary as the issue. They have cited the policies they don't agree with. They have cited um, not being respected as professionals and being pushed to, to, to try cases and pursue cases um, that they don't believe they should pursue. So w- w- what I would say is I think a good DA, if he does it, if he or she does their job right, and I believe that I could and I will, um, might be able to return money to the general fund of cities from the criminal justice system. Because if you look at any city, the one area that has seen its budget just grow every single year, regardless of outcome. It's police, DA, criminal courts, and jails. And if we become truly smart on crime and maintain prog- progressive stances, we're going to be able to reduce the amount of money we're spending in the criminal justice system, which will allow us to uh, reinvest that money and do what Frederick Douglass told us a long time invest in building strong boys, and I will add girls to his quote, than than, than this idea of repairing broken men and women. Very good. Thank you very much for being on our show. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I got to tell you, man, I am, I'm really excited that that this show exists to talk about this work and this need. I just, I I take my hat off to you. Thank you. That was Jason Williams from New Orleans. He's running for DA. He's a city council member. He is the latest in our series of progressive candidates, and we have been talking to them all across the country over the last few weeks. Next week, we're going to have Larry Krasner, who uh, was elected in Philadelphia a couple years ago, and he'll be on on February the 6th. You've been listening to Everyday Injustice. This is David Greenwald. Join us again next time for another episode. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www justiceforgeorgepowell.com that's justiceforgeorgepowell all one word dot com